first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Um, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. <laughs> Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep Podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. American, how's life over there in Shanghai? It's hot. It's crazy, crazy hot. I don't think a lot of people know, but uh, Shanghai is on the same latitude as, say, Louisiana, like New Orleans, mm-hmm. and it's it's on the ocean. So the summers here are like New Orleans summers. That is to say, ridiculously hot. You know, a hundred degrees, and then uh, almost a hundred percent humidity. So it's you just walk outside and. Oh man! Uh, but we we have typhoons roll through in the summertime, which is quite different than in Dallas. So that's the you know, Chinese version of a hurricane. And we just had one go through a few days ago. So it kind of cools things down and and brings some wind. So yeah, it's all good. Yeah. When people say hot, always like, I'm like, okay, what is your definition of hot? Because Fred's like, oh, it's 20 degrees Celsius today. (laughs) I'm dying. It's 20. Shut up, dude. It's like, I I live in Arizona. So we go outside and it's 120 (laughs) degrees midday. Yeah, but you have air condition. Come on. We don't have air condition here in Denmark. We need it like for those five days a year. But those five days a year feels like an eternity because it's so hot. <laughs> well, let's see if we can get American to send you one of those little fans that you can use. Oh, that would be fantastic. So we got we to gotta talk about a lot of different things. And I kind of wanted to start off. It seems like there's been a lot of chatter about this new Alice project. And it's really exciting to kind of see uh, when you're, you're – I think tweeting on Twitter, trying to get the game, the original game back on Steam. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff, just I have to preface by saying that I'm under multiple NDAs um, with a variety of different companies that make it really difficult for me to, to get into too much detail. I get constant reminders and pokes from the people I'm dealing with telling me to stop. It's um, a little frustrating, but um, that's the difference, I think, between the corporate mentality and the direction that we're trying to take it, which is to open it up to the public. I, I keep hitting on this idea that we're doing something called crowdfunding or crowd design, um, which is also using crowdfunding. But the idea of crowd design is that the fans, um, people on social media, they get to be involved in this process in a way that what I've what I've seen, you know, of traditional game development, it's just not done. Um, publishers, especially, are very hesitant to open up a project and make it make it visible um, before it's ready for them to publish. And so we're, we're really going against the grain in a lot of ways um, with what we're doing. That is very much something that I think we're kind of talking about here with Realms Deep is we're, we're seeing the change into like, you know, early access and people are like constantly kind of promoting their game ahead of time. And as you said, with with dealing with the corporate stuff and everything and trying to open it up to the public, I guess what I what I really want to know is like what is, what are your goals in order uh, or in regards to getting this game out of the the initial stages of talking and getting it into the public eye because as you said like you can't really like go around tweeting about a whole lot of stuff and I, I'm not sure it's just such a difficult situation to kind of see you in. Well, the goal that we have stated has been the same since the very start of the idea of going out and trying to make something happen, which started with me actually writing a blog post. Um, I wrote a blog post and I asked the people, please stop emailing me and tweeting at me and making videos and sending me and I mean, just flooding me constant with requests to make a new game. So I wrote a blog post and I said, look, everyone, as much as I love Alice, as much as I know you love Alice, Alice is ultimately controlled and owned by Electronic Arts. So please stop bothering me. And if you're interested in a new game, go bother. They reached out to me. They said that they were starting to have a sense that there's a lot of IP they have sitting on a shelf somewhere gathering dust Mm -hmm. and that they might want to try to figure out a way to put that kind of IP back in the hands of developers and let developers run off and do something with it, even if it's 
not something that they could be involved with, which is, which is, you know, it was a change in direction. It was a change in the way of thinking for them. Um, so began what is still ongoing, um, this sort of saga of trying to license the Alice IP from EA so we can go off and develop it independently and seek funding independently. And throughout this process, um, there have been a couple of sort of start and restarts, and um, it seems like things are going to get done, and it seems like they might get done in a different way. Um, and then all that gets undone and starts over again. Um, and we are now going on two years since that that time where EA reached out to me and two years of back and forth negotiation and thinking that we might be close to getting something done and then everything getting reset. And so on the, on the side of things where, uh, you know, we we want to make progress towards getting a license in place so we can go off and actually secure funding. Um, we are much in much the same position we were, um, you know, two years ago when all this began. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we are making some sort of progress on the BD stuff. It's just like two steps forward, one step back. Um, but on the design front, using Patreon, we're making a tremendous amount of progress on the art and the story. And we're even starting to build models and other kind of, content to prove what the game concept would be. But going even beyond that, we're now writing a design Bible, um, the goal of which would be that you could set that thing down and flip through the entire game from front to back, meaning every scene, every line of dialogue, every character, every level, everything that you could imagine that would go into the making of the game. So our goal right now is whatever else goes on with the with the talks we're having with EA, um, the goal right now is to get that design Bible done in, and also in a physical format, like we would publish an actual book of this thing. Um, and by the time that's finished, if EA is still uncertain about what's going on with the licensing stuff, we will at least be able to check off that we've done all the story and design work um, and then set that aside. And that business development could then continue until the point where we're able to, to move and do something. Um, but it would also free our team up to pursue other creative endeavors if we're just not in a position to push into development right at the time where the design gets done. So um, it's been a little, I don't know if I'd say it's been frustrating because it's been great working with this team and getting so much done. Um, but it is, well, it is just the nature of working with these large corporations that they don't move to our expectations or our schedules. It's a pretty interesting process to hear how usually when you do pre-production, you you create your design documentation as a basis for the designers and programmers, et cetera, you usually don't create it as a piece that you can actually read through. And by reading through the whole piece, you are basically playing through the whole game, but in, in a physical paper format. That's that's super interesting. How, how do you go about putting that together? Is it like, and here's a description of the level, here's some pictures and concept art. And can you maybe dive into a bit more like how does a Bible like that, is, like how's that put together? Well, I mean, it's just breaking the game down into chapters and we've done this before but you know the analogy that i've made in the past when we, when i've made games and it doesn't matter which game it is i mean throughout the history of all the games i've made well so the, yeah the question of the bible i mean here's the thing what i've experienced in the past is while working on games we normally end up with something like a design bible or at least a complete design by the time the game is finished now there's been exceptions like we worked on quake and we didn't know what the design of quake was until we had to write the copy on the back of the box right um, but you could have said that at the point where we wrote the copy, we knew what the design was or we knew what the story was. Um, on the last Alice game, this, the experience was one that we described as, you know, designing and building the airplane as it, you know, rushed down the, the runway preparing to take off. And that's been an experience that's been one that I've had on multiple projects that you never have the luxury of starting a project with a design that is 100% complete. You may have an outline of a design. You may have some notion of like the beginning, middle, and end of the of the game or the story. But in in a lot of cases where I've worked on games, um, we didn't have the complete design done until somewhere in the middle of the the development itself, right? Um, so in this instance, uh, the since we have all this time and since we don't have the pressure of actually trying to build the game right now, we are just sitting down and putting together the entire what we call design Bible. Um, it, we have a template for it that looks a lot like a book um, in, in the sense that it's divided up into chapters and the chapters have a substructure about 
you know, the characters in the story and the art and the things that you'll encounter inside of there. Um, so I, I don't know that it's that different from, I mean, I've seen, you know, design Bibles for other games before in the past. Um, I don't think it's that different from what's been done in the past, but I do think that doing it this early before we have the full-blown team in place is a little bit different. Um, and, and hopefully having it completely finished before we start production would save us a lot of hassle during production. Yeah, so we're uh, we're doing this whole Realms Deep thing. Uh, Fred specifically has been super hyped on getting into all the old stuff. I don't want to like have you have to like revisit and answer a million questions that you've answered a million times about a million different games that you've worked on. Um, but with that said, we do have <laughs> to address the uh, the things that you have done and uh, became famous for and everything. So without uh without rehashing, yeah. yeah, without rehashing the whole story, I just want to. We're here to like get to know you. Like it's really like an opportunity for your fans and for you know Fred's fans and I guess my fans to also just have a window into your life as well. So it doesn't have to necessarily be about like what was it like when you worked on Doom? Just you know, <laughs> how has this a uh, entire experience kind of formed who you are now is kind of what I'm interested in. Sure, sure. I mean I hardly remember much about um when I worked on Doom. I mean, keeping in mind that that's uh, I was 20 years old and I'm about to be 50. So we're talking about something that happened nearly 30 years ago, right? right. Um, so my memories of the things that happened back then are pretty faded. Um, I think it's only really the the most um, kind of sharpest, uh, maybe painful or most um, interesting memories that still stick out. In terms of how it's shaped me, I mean, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you wake up, I do, I wake up um, and most mornings... I'm aware of the fact that the foundation upon which my life is built is one that is built. It's all built upon the legacy of, you know, John Carmack offering me a job at id and then that giving me the entrance into the games industry, which led to everything else that I'm doing. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of times that I think about the legacy. I also think about just being thankful for the people that, I met along the way and that gave me a hand up and that, um, you know, are still out there. And, you know, when I see their names and when I see the new projects that they're working on, um, it's, you know, it's just a constant reminder of the history of the legacy of all that stuff. Throughout all of that, like you, because you got offered this gig, but you weren't like, you were just kind of a hobbyist, right. Of in terms of game design, you didn't, you didn't go to school for games or programming as far as I understand it. Right. So, did you expect at that point to ever have a career in this industry at all? Well, I think so. A couple things. First of all, at that time in history, no one had any expectation that there was a, there was a thing called a career in games. Um, it just wasn't a thing. And in fact, if you told people that you were getting into making games, the the thing it was so rare um, that it almost sounded like. It might it might have been like if, you know, in the 40s, you told people you were getting into rock and roll and, and like people didn't get what rock and roll was. And they thought you were either insane or on drugs or it was just a flight of fancy that would be gone um, in a few weeks or months. Right. I mean, that was the reaction I got from friends and family that like, oh, you're going to go work on games. Well, what, what even is that? What does that even mean? You know, um, so. I think even for myself, the notion that, you know, it was new to me. So back, back to the question of like, was I a hobbyist? Uh, was I at all, at all sort of learned in these things? Um, I had been playing with computers since a very young age. Like I was given my first um, hands-on computer. It was a Timex Sinclair 2000 that you plugged into your television with an RC jack, RCA jack. Um, I was given that when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Um, and then I went on from that to Commodore 64s and Amigas and, you know, eventually worked up to, you know, PCs and, and Apples. And so um, I had experience with it. But at the time where John offered me my job, I think, you know, fairly well-known story by now is I was a high school dropout and I was working on cars for a living. So I was a car mechanic. And, and, and at that time, you know, being in the headspace of somebody who's dropped out of high school and... Let me tell you, when you drop out of high school and you go out and you try to find a job as a high school dropout and you're not even you know, 18 years old yet, um, that's a really brutal, really frightening experience, um, especially when, you know, at that time I was um, there was no one to go home to. You know, I was living by myself. And um, so the idea of like 
oh, I may go off to make games. Didn't it never ever crossed my mind. And the only thing I was concerned about was eating and paying the rent. And um, I was I was tangentially aware of id because i'd played wolfenstein from a disc that i'd got at a computer swap meet in a parking lot um but you know that that was it and like when i met john and then i had to put two and two together that like oh there's that there's that thing i was playing called wolfenstein oh this guy made that (laughs) you know it's like what the hell it's a small world um you know it, it was difficult to reconcile it much less to imagine that i could say to him Hey, give me a job, or you know. And I, I never thought of doing that. I, I never even it never crossed my mind to say to John, "I'd like a job working doing what you do," because I just thought like, "Well, I'm just a grease monkey, you know, I'm just a car mechanic. Why? Why would he even entertain that notion?" Um, so yeah, it was um, it was a big shift. It was a big change in life. What What in your background, like when 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 you were offered that job? What did he see in, in you? What, did you have any kind of hobby projects that you were doing or anything that, that would make him hire you? Uh, look, I, you know, I'm not really sure. We, we played games together. Um, so, you know, he understood. And, he, and I went up and I, I beta tested on Doom. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they saw me sit down at a computer and play a game and um, probably got to know me a little bit, got to understand my style of feedback and communication. Uh, I think John was aware that I had programming skills because I think I had told him that the reason I went to that computer swap meet was to buy a PC for the shop where I worked. And at that shop, I was helping to write an inventory control system to keep track of all the parts on all the shelves um, in the building. So he and I think other people were aware that I was capable of doing that sort of work, um, but I was doing it in an auto shop. So, you know, um, but I think you'd have to ask him specifically hmm. what he saw in me and why. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like he was offering jobs to every person that he met on the street. And there were other friends that we had around um, who were also in similar sort of normal situations, I guess you could say. And they were coming up to beta test and they were somehow not on that list where John said, um, you come and you work uh, at id now, you know. So I don't know. Um, exactly what it was. Now, look, it may have just been, and I don't want to be presumptuous about his, you know, state about what what was going on between the two of us, but it may have just been that we had a nice relationship, right? That we communicated well, or that he felt comfortable around me. Um, who knows? But uh, whatever you want to paint it as, it could have been friendship. It could have been pity. It could have been somewhere in the middle. If he saw something, a spark in me, um, but he he put out his hand, and uh, the rest was history. Not just in terms of the computer stuff, but in terms of creativity, like what, if you can remember, kind of formed that in you, like the the need to tell these, because I mean, after that, you know, these macabre stories and like everything that you've done since your time with id, I'm just curious, like what in your life kind of informed that part of your sensibility? Well, that's, I mean, that's, um, you know, I think it's been said many times before in different ways that when we write and we tell stories, um, we're often telling our own story and we're telling different variations on our own story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if that's the truth, then it's uh, a requirement that you have lived maybe an interesting life or a difficult life, or at least a life full of stories um, in order to have that well upon which to draw. Now, um, good or bad, I mean, I, I view this as, again, one of those foundational aspects of my life that if it weren't there, I wouldn't be where I am today. But one of the foundational aspects of my life is that in childhood, there was a degree of abuse, um, physical and mental, psychological um, abuse. And there were, you know, how would you say there were very interesting um, living experiences, you know, as a child growing up, my family was um, split down the middle on the one side was a fundamentalist Christian I mean, like homeschooling and no television and, you know, the girls could only wear the clothes that the mom sewed for them and being read the Bible multiple times per day. Um, And then on the other side uh, of the family was complete hippie, you know, uh, growing pot, selling pot, um, you know, just open relationships, you know, drugs, alcohol, rock and roll. I mean, it was just (laughs) like night and day. 
And um, I lived in the interface layer between these two worlds. And I got to experience everything that went on uh, on both sides of that, both culturally and um, in terms of music, in terms of literature, in terms of psychology. Um, so I imagined that that was a bizarre petri dish, you know, in which to raise a child. I spent years as a child growing up, um, some years in Mexico. Um, you know, my mom moved around a lot. She had a lot of different, very varied um, jobs um, when I was growing up. So there was just a lot of variety, I think, in my childhood. And it wasn't, I guess you would say it wasn't normal. Um, but at the same time, except for the obvious cases of abuse, it also wasn't bad. Um, we were really poor, but that meant that I had to build my own toys. I mean, meant I had to use my imagination a lot. So I think those kinds of elements, uh, that's what led to having, uh, you know, fostered a love of imagination, but also combining that with a lot of personal stories, which could then be tapped into and turned into stuff with that imagination. Yeah, as you say that, I I can really see how that lines up with are you familiar with this uh, guy called eric weinstein he's a mathematician sure okay so yeah yeah i like him and brett weinstein quite a bit they're they're very interesting to listen to he his uh podcast is called the portal and it kind of centers around this idea that escapism or basically all storytelling has for children has this sort of unified idea of you go through a portal into another kind of escapist fantastical universe. Um, in your case, your fascination with the story of Alice going through the looking glass and everything. And, and as you say, you kind of lived a, a difficult childhood and creativity was your escape. And it seems like a, such an interesting kind of psychological factor that you would end up kind of becoming centered around this story that involves a child with like a, you know, a life that she would like to escape into something more fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think one of the aspects of her personality and her, what you'd call her superpower mm -hmm. is the fact that she uses imagination as a tool. And that means that instead of allowing her demons to run over her and define who she is and destroy her life, she's able to go and grapple with them now they they're you know they're they're not physical right but they um are still just as damaging as something that or maybe even more so damaging than something if it were physical um so she's figured out how to go and grapple with the non-physical with the psychological um and that's her main skill her main ability and through you know throughout all these stories so I think that was something that when I was a child, I was also doing a lot of. I was doing a lot of escapism, a lot of impersonation in my mind. I had a lot of different voices and characters that lived within me. And, um, I, you know, on the topic of portals, I remember as a kid, I used to just draw portals in midair and step through them, telling myself that once I'd done that and stepped through that, um, then whatever the experience was I was having would be different. And so I could draw a portal and step out of, you know, ex uh, experience A that I happened to be in at the moment into experience B just by telling myself that this worked. And um, I think that that's actually continued to be something that I've done, not drawing in midair, um, but pushing myself through experiences or into completely new experience experiences over and over throughout life. Yeah. I'm really glad I got onto that tangent. So mm -hmm. creatively, like if you're working on a project, right. Um, let's say you forget something. Have you, you heard of this like mnemonic of stand up and like walk through the threshold of the door again and you'll remember it, things like that, or ha yeah. having the, the kind yeah. of power to do something in the physical world that manifests something you're trying to do psychologically or vice versa is a very powerful tool. Correct. Yeah. And I think this is something, I mean, if you listen to, um, I think, I don't know if it's Jordan, Jordan Peterson or um, there's someone else that talks about these, um, the landscapes of the mind, basically how the, the Greeks, when they had their um, mega opus, you know, um, tragedies and, and stories that they would tell, they would create these mental rooms and then walk through them to remind themselves of each of the, uh, you know, separate chapters. Of course, it's a skill we've lost because now anytime we want to remember something, we just look at our phone and boom, it's there. So people have become quite lazy in terms of building those kind of mental landscapes and using them to recall things. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because of the way I grew up or because of 
um, just being born this way, my brain is incredibly visual. So if I've seen something or experienced something, it's captured almost photographically and it stays with me for quite a long time in that fashion, um, which can be a bad thing, by the way, whenever something bad happens to you and you have that supposed skill, um, then it becomes a definite burden. It's not a, it's not a thing that you want, but when it comes to creativity and remembering things and crafting stories, it's actually quite useful. I can definitely relate. I, I think a lot of very creative people share that, um, you know, a very, uh, real life example of that is that, uh, I don't remember my pin numbers, but I remember the pattern of my pin numbers, which mm. is a, a visual thing. So whenever you have a, a keypad that's reversed, you know, it goes from you know yeah. nine to one is that I just have no idea what my pin number is. I have to kind of like find my phone out and then <laughs> type the pattern, try to write. So, so yeah, I, I completely know where, where, you're, where you're coming from. I remember everything visually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what I've seen of people who are creative and who have those kinds of skills, though, is that, and I have had this experience in my life with my own sister, I assume that she um, had a brain that was very much like mine, and she had, um, you know, similar sort of capabilities or abilities or latent talent or something. Um, but she was quite frustrated in life. And I could see that without an outlet, that this kind of hyper visualization, the ability to tell stories, the ability to shift between frames of reality and all of that can become um, something that feels more like an illness and that needs treatment. And a lot of times that leads to people getting involved with drugs and alcohol because it's a sort of self-treatment to deal with the fact that all the things that you experience are still with you all the time and that you visualize and hear and see and feel these things all the time. Um, I know that for me, without an outlet, without a creative outlet, I start to overflow. I start to become quite um, agitated and I can be very unpleasant to be around. Um, so I have to find creative outlets to get this stuff out. Um, otherwise, it, it's just not healthy. And I think for a lot of people out there, there's a frustration that goes along with having this this kind of feeling of storytelling and imagination, but not having the ability to to get it out. Do you do you find that you get it out any other way um, other than just gaming? Is there or do you have any other kind of like looking at your room? Looks like you have a lot of artistic pursuit going on there. So, I am yeah. So you know, music. I, yeah, um, there's a cello back there somewhere. So I play music. Um, I play play cello these days, but I've played different instruments um, throughout life. And then storytelling, writing is one. And then you know, actually, I I'm quite. I'm happy doing things like spreadsheets um, that are the kind of, you know, foundation of the business that we run. So, I mean, it, I think a lot of people will feel like there's not a lot of creativity in spreadsheets, but there's people out there who I know, know what I'm talking about. When you know how to build a really good Excel spreadsheet, mm -hmm. it's a thing of art, right? So, so satisfying. Uh, so satisfying. <laughs> so, um, so I'm, I'm fortunate in that I, you know, I can take something that a lot of people will look at like accounting and things like that and schedule making. Um, and I can find art artistic outlet in that. Um, and then I do a lot of tinkering, uh, meaning mechanical tinkering. So like my garage is filled with all kinds of bits and pieces of projects and, you know, building FP, um, FPV drones and I go sailing. So I have a sailboat in Thailand and I do all my own maintenance on that. So that means that all of the experience that I got as a car mechanic actually follows over into working on my boat on my own. So it's got a diesel motor in it. I can take the diesel motor apart and I can fix things, the electrical system and the fuel systems and all the everything, you know, on the boat from front to back, those kind of things are really important. I have to have things to work on. If I don't have things to work on, um, if I have idle hands, then I will become ill. I become very unhappy uh, without goals and things to work on. So yeah, I've got <laughs> there's tons and tons of stuff to keep me occupied um, in that way. And and these days we, we just had a baby boy. And so that is a fantastic project. Um, he is just like this little fun He's a scientist and he's also a science project, you know, so he's like a science, uh, he's my, he's like my little science project who also himself happens to be a little scientist. Um, and that's become the most uh, enjoyable uh, and rewarding kind of activity that I've ever had. That's fantastic. It reminds me of um, Neil deGrasse was just that all kids are, are scientists. They're basically doing experiments, physics experiments all the time. And 
constant, whenever, constant, whenever, constant, whenever yeah. as parents, you tell them, you know, don't take that, don't drop that, and so on. You're basically teaching them not to experiment and learn things Correct. in science. That's exactly right. So, you know, it's funny because um, we, we live in China, and in China you have very strong familial, fam family structure, um, orientation towards family structure. So when you have a child, it's almost an automatic given that someone's parent is moving in. So in this case, it's my mom, uh, my, my, my wife's mother immediately was installed in the house. And there was like no question of, you know, if she was, if that was even going to be a thing or not, it was just like, she's living here now. <laughs> so that's, that's um, very she's different pretty, in the West. Yeah. <laughs> it's very different. Um, and it, but but she's very um, kind of traditional. She's got some very um, kind of non-scientific, unscientific ways of thinking. Um, and I'm constantly having to talk to her about the fact that, hey, we have to let him fall down. Or, hey, we have to let him pull that thing off the shelf onto his face. You know, obviously not a television, but, you know, like yeah. a bottle of water or something, you know, light. Um, you have to let them make mistakes because if you don't let them make mistakes, if you don't let them try and fail and try and fail and then try and get it, uh, he's going to be, you know, held back a bit on, on doing that. He'll eventually get there. But if we if we let him have the freedom to experiment, he will do much better. And And by the way, I mean, that's not just a rule for kids. That's a rule for life. It's one of my main rules for myself is that if something scares me or bothers me, I run towards it. You know, if it's emotional, um, if it's physical, if it's going off on an adventure, the moment that I find that I feel uncomfortable, I know I'm in the right place. And then I keep pushing in that direction. If it's learning something new, you know, learning how to do something differently, whatever. Um, and I think it's a good rule. And it's I'm trying to teach him and he's only not even a year old yet, but he seems to dig it. It's a fantastic thing watching your kids just do something by themselves. I, I remember when when I had my daughter just just sitting and watching her, you know, crawl or walk around and pull things off the shelves and experiment things where you'd usually say, oh, no, no, don't touch that. And you'd be overly careful. Mm. Your job in that situation is just, okay, let's make sure she doesn't hurt herself too much. But, you know, let's see what she does. Let's see what happens when she takes out that book and and just watching right. them experiment and play around is it's such a magical experience because you can see them instantly learning. And most of the time they'll pull exactly something down right. and it makes a loud noise, they keep doing it because the loud noise is fun. But but otherwise, yeah, it, it's 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 a really, really fun and, and rewarding experience. Well, it's it's interesting, I think, because we do live in a world where so many parents want to, you know, completely wrap everything in, in bubble wrap and make everything super safe and um, there's yeah. a phrase I like a lot, and that is that you're supposed to uh, prepare the child for the road. Don't try to prepare the road for the child, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. That is, don't go out and try to make the, the world a safer place. Instead, teach your children how to, you know, confront and and overcome any obstacles that they might find in front of them. And that's really something I, I've noticed is like lost. You know, I, I go and meet other people who have kids, and we meet a lot of people here in China who have kids. Um, and people coddle their children so much. Yeah. And then I think like, man, this, this kid's going to be scared to try anything. And then they are like, you, you find that they're just complete scaredy cats. And I don't know how they're going to grow up into functional adults like that. But I, I think that's something still very recent because even my generation, I grew up in the nineties and I have vivid memories. My, my parents or my mom uh, raised me and my sister in, in a tiny one bedroom apartment um, in this, you know, complex where, you know, a lot of, uh, low-income families live, and we were we were just used to just running outside by ourselves until seven or eight in the evening, and then my mom would just yell from the balcony, like out in the open, "Fred and Sarah, you need to get home now!" And then somewhere in the distance, we're going, "Oh, Fred, your mom!" And then it would like go on a chain uh, across all the different mm. kids. Hey, Fred, your mom is like you don't <laughs> see that even today. And and this is this is not no. that long ago. This was like in in the you know mid early nineties. And nowadays, holy cow, I, even me, and I also, you know, that's also my own fault. I don't let my daughter out like after, you know, six in the evening by herself without me being able to actually see her and, oh, stay close and so on. Because you're, you're kind of, I don't know, you, it's weird because I was not raised that way, but I'm also raising my kid in that way that, you know, don't go out by yourself and always an adult with you. But when I grew up, it was never a concern. You just ah, no, this is come home. You know, this is um, one of the great mysteries of the age in which we live, where, you know, we're, 
what's the, the question is sort of, you know, if you could choose to live at any period during the, the history of, of people, when would you live? You, you would choose to live right now. Why? Because we are the richest, healthiest, longest living, safest, you know, everything is as good as it's ever been. And yet everyone is not everyone, but yet a lot of people are constantly overcome by fear, fear of the other, fear of danger, fear of something happening to them or the ones that they love. Um, and why, you know, it's, it's actually not the reality that we live in. It's not that bad out there. Um, and yet we're constantly told that it's, yeah. it's the end of the world. Um, and so people live as if it is, it's really unfortunate. Do you think, do you think there's some truth to, uh, you know, when Morpheus in the matrix says that, uh, or agent Smith says that we humans define their happiness through suffering. And that's why the first version of the matrix uh, wasn't accepted. It sounds a bit like, you know, version 2.0 of the matrix is what we had between your youth and my youth, you know, where there's enough right. suffering that that we're defining our happiness through through it, but everything is not too perfect that we don't know what to be mad about, and then we're overprotecting everyone, which is kind of what we're seeing well, now. I think, Do you think there's some truth? I mean, the the idea that humans define their existence through suffering, I I think, is a kind of inversion of the the Buddhist philosophy that existence is suffering. And that when we finally come to terms with the fact that existence is suffering, we, we reduce the amount of suffering that we experience, right? So, I mean, there's this, there's one of these sayings, you know, that if you're being, if you feel um, depressed about something, it means you're living in the past. If you feel nervous about something, it means you're living in the future. Um, we barely tend to live in the moment. And when we do live in the yeah. moment, a lot of that stuff tends to kind of fade away and we, we stop being so freaked out about everything. But People in the society in which we live right now, I mean, we live in fear of things that are happening on the other side of the planet in a place yeah. and in news that will never, ever have any impact on our lives at all. You know, I, I remember reading this um, the Nassim Tlaib. He was saying in one of his books that uh, he had decided to stop reading the news for a year as at the same time that he was a trader. As well, traders. You would think that by not reading the news, his trading uh, ability would suffer. And he said that in that year, he actually had a fantastic year and other people around him were reading the news and trading just as badly as ever. So the idea was that we get all these signals and all this input, but it's all complete noise. It's useless. And there's, there's nothing in any of it that we can do much about. Right. Um, so it seems to be that it's, it's not necessarily that um, we define our lives by suffering, but I think there are organizations um, there are people out there that know that we can be led around and controlled and manipulated by our fear of suffering. Um, but the only way to yeah. get past that is just to realize that like suffering is just natural and suffering's going to happen no matter what. And to listen to other people telling us that, Hey, suffering's coming, suffering's coming. Um, all it does is it puts them in control of, of our state of, of our mental state. It's fun. It's, it's something I've been kind of trying to analyze in my head recently where you know, we, we've had a, a bunch of, of really, really hard meetings over the past past few months uh, for a few different projects that are, you know, we, we you, know, you have hard meetings every now and then when you're running a business. And leading up to those meetings, I feel uh, I feel very down because I don't know what to expect. You're, you're nervous. What's the result going to be and so on. And every single time when that meeting is over, I guess get this boost of happiness and energy. And I've been kind of trying to analyze why why does this happen, and maybe even trying to expect that. All right, when I'm done with this meeting, I'm gonna be super happy. And it's almost it almost doesn't matter what the result of the meeting is. It's just the fact that all right now that thing that I was nervous about or scared of is now over and behind me. And trying to get that thought process ahead of me before the meeting is something I've personally been trying to train myself to. But it's super weird how how the brain works in this way. Think about like soldiers who fought in great wars um even though that is the single most horrific thing they've ever been through most of them will say it was the greatest time of my life um yeah. going through something difficult and then coming out on the other end is usually like is the payoff that you get from that something that an american said earlier was how like if he sees something that makes him uncomfortable he runs headlong into it and then you overcome it and then you've benefited you've learned something from that or, you know, mm -hmm. Warren Buffett even was like, they're like, people ask him, like, how do you make so much money? He's like, I take risks when other people are afraid to. So when people, you know, they see the stock markets crashing, oh, God, that's when he buys stock. And it, that could be translated to a million other things. If people are like, oh, I don't want to make 
this new game project that you know I think you know will be something that's special. Um, the person who does that when someone else is afraid to is going to be the one who gets all the payoff, or you know fails yeah. and then learns from that mistake. And even failing and learning from the mistake is is often much more valuable. I, I went bankrupt with my first company, uh, you know, if, like four or five years ago. And, and that that experience, uh, when when you're looking back um, or looking ahead, and you know, all right, now it's coming, everything is going to collapse now. It's the most depressing moment in your life. But then, when you hit rock bottom. And you know, there's nowhere else to go than forward from here. I, I lived in my parents' basement at, you know, we, like I was like 29 or something. It's super depressing. Uh, I was so happy because I knew everything I was doing right now, everything I was planning and, and designing, it can only go one way. And I think back of that moment, living in my parents' basement for three months as a super happy time, even though it should have been the most depressing time. But at this time, I was like, all right, if I had to start a new game company, here's all the things I would do different. And the only reason I know that is because I went down. I wouldn't have known any of these things if everything would have just been a success. So that shaped me in a much better way, I'd say, than if our first or second game had been a huge success and I would never experience these things. So, so this brings me back to an incredibly convenient and analogous idea that ties into a question I had for American. You've already said that you really like to go through difficult things and come out on the other side. Uh, you are notorious for making levels that are just like, what the fuck just happened to me? Uh, like the, the crusher comes to mind, right? I, I yeah. Know. You, you know, when it's an American level. Yeah. Uh, we were actually joking with Tim Willis about that the other day, like how it's like, <laughs> the 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 general design philosophy that I hear a lot of you know developers will say is like you should always feel like Hugo said this one who's promoting Doom Eternal even like you should always feel like that when you die in a game or you know if you fail in a game that it's because you failed and not because the game killed you and America you turned that like right on its head and I thought that was fucking hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I think um, at that time we were still enough. There, there was enough unawareness of the kind of handholding um, that we eventually grew into. I, we call it handholding, but I mean, I, and I think there's a reason why that sort of handholding exists, but um, we were still enough on the bleeding edge that so many other things about these games could carry you through getting crushed without warning um, and that you would even take it as a fun part of the experience. Whereas for something like that to happen in a game today, you won't take it as a fun experience and you might even be quite offended and give the, the game a bad review. Um, I think, you know, at that period in game development history, I mean, we, we were all still just messing around, mm -hmm. right? We, we were just throwing everything that we could against the wall and seeing what worked and what sticked. And um, so many of the rules that we have these days about things like, give the player some indication that you're going to kill them before you do it. So they might be able to avoid it. Um, those came out of those kind of experimental uh, design choices that were getting made back in those days. It just makes me think like, I, I wish people could have seen some of the stuff that we were doing. Um, so I remember that, you know, we would use the, the doom engine or the quake engine and I would just build a hallway with spawn points in it. Mm -hmm. It was just one hallway and it might've been, you know, in real world, world terms, sort of like 10 or 20 meters long, not, not big, you know, you could only fit like four or five player characters in it kind of comfortably, comfortably. Um, and then I would just put a rocket launcher in there and that level. And, and, you know, we never published those kind of things, but we would play these multiplayer maps that were, that was just a hallway with, with rocket launchers in them. And the, the crazy thing was that Romero and I could sit in one of these hallway maps like that, just shooting each other in the face with rockets for 10, 15 minutes, laughing our asses off because the, the, the experience of it was so novel. No one had ever done that, right? No one had ever built a hallway and put rocket launchers in it and just shot each other in the face for 10 minutes. It was hilarious. Now, of course, you know, we would get that sensation and we would take some bit of learning from it. Um, and then we move on, you just throw it away. But a lot of maps that were these little stub 
experiments like that got made. And of course, a lot of jokes were being played on each other when we built maps. You know, it would be sort of because we had absolute control over these environments, we would build maps with, you know, with the intention of playing deathmatch against each other, but also with the intention of cheating during the match so that I could beat Romero at deathmatch. So that would mean that I would put, you know, stuff into the map that would not be technically legal um, in a in a map in a map that you shipped out to the world, right? Um, so that kind of experimentation, I think, again, led to an understanding of a lot of the rules that at that point just they hadn't been written. Kind of tying back into what you were saying earlier about you know with your raising your child and watching them make mistakes sometimes so that they can learn from them, and not trying to create the world, but trying to you know create an an informed person who can survive in the world. We touched on the subject of how games today often will just hold your hand through the whole thing, and it, it is important to a lot of people. Like, if they have one moment of adversity that isn't like immediately rewarding to them, they will throw the whole you know baby out with the bathwater, unfortunately, and they don't want to kind of deal with that. But I think that's when we were talking about like prioritizing safety over liberty and things like that. I think that's why we're kind of in the situation we are now, where we're doing this realms deep convention you know to celebrate kind of a, a revival of that old style of gameplay that you know you were just talking about um i think that a lot of people in my generation specifically i'm 25 years old you guys are uh both senior citizens and <laughs> but you have a, a lot of people my age that want to escape that super safe handheld like easy experience and we just want to be challenged and we find it in games like this, like games like Doom, games like Alice, games like uh, all of Fred's projects, uh, you know, Wrath. For me personally, like it, that is directly because I just I don't want to get caught up in that rat race of like everything has to be super coddly and super easy and super uh, just guided the whole way. I want freedom. I want to express myself within the games that I play. Well, it's great to hear. Um, and it should be that way because there is a natural sort of oscillation that goes back and forth. I mean, we see it in music, we see it in fashion, we see it in politics, we mm -hmm. see it in the psychology of generations of, of people when they're growing up is that you have generations that are interested in safety more than in um, adventure. And then you get, you know, generations that are that are more liberal and they're, they're more interested in going out and finding adventure and less interested in safety. Um, you know, it's funny, like I have one one of my friends, uh, he's completely covered in tattoos from head to toe. And the idea is that his kids are probably going to grow up and be, you know, preppy, yuppie, mm -hmm. whatever, clean cut suit wearing, you know, because they're going to look at dad and be like, dad, you're not cool. <laughs> I don't I don't. Why would I want to have tattoos? My dad has tattoos. Um, so I think that that sort of thing is is natural. And it's good to see. And I've I've read quite a bit about that recently, that there's a whole new generation of people who are coming up who after the coddling has has gone on for as long as it has are now thirsty for being independent being um more adventurous um, and i think that's great it, it is true that this like pattern kind of continues to repeat itself throughout history i mean the fall of the roman empire kind of came from a, a coddled youth the you know the hippie generation came from a you know the golden generation like a world war uh great mm -hmm. economic prosper uh social revolution Reagan, like all the way down the line, and now we're doing it again. Right now we're in that like super safe well, and, place again. And I'm watching it here in China. It's incredible just seeing. Like I said, we've got in this household, we've got multiple generations. Um, I, you know, I can go with my wife to her hometown, visit her grandparents, which would be my son's great grandparents. Um, they were born and lived before the the Mao era, and then I I can hang out with my wife's mom, who grew up in the midst of that era, mm -hmm. of of the you know uh, rise of communism in China, and now I can hang out with my wife, and then the people that work for her that are one generation, you know, newer than she is, 
and you watch, you, you can see this really interesting spectrum of mm -hmm. the grandparents, the great, great grandparents are super cool because they were, you know, pre Mao. And then the mom is very conservative. She's very set in her ways. Um, and then her daughter is a, re is a rebel. And then the, the kids coming after that are even more rebellious, you know? So there's this, this amazing uh, spectrum of behaviors and styles and things like that that are emerging here. And you now have the, the sort of 20 to 25 year olds in China are mimicking the styles of classic China mm -hmm. um, from you know 500 to 1,000 years ago, wearing these flowy gowns and stuff, and they wear them out in public. Like they, they, it's like if you could imagine that we all decided one day to get up and start going out in um, in togas, you know, Roman you know, sort of. They're going out in this traditional um, Chinese dress uh, to the shopping malls and and you know on the subways and stuff. Um, so they're reaching even further back to pull something in, into the present and make it theirs. Um, and theirs is a completely different style and culture from the, all the ones that came before them. And who who could have guessed that they would have gone back to that, you know, to this kind of kinder, gentler, cleaner, in their minds, time, um, and then trying to pull that into the modern day. It's kind of funny you mentioned how, how you know, when, when, when we look back at the 80s and 90s and, and our... Um, our definition of what the future would be like. It, it's always like the Blade Runner type, flying cars, etc. And it seems even with stuff like video games and fashion and, and behavior that each and every second and third generation kind of goes back again. Like I've, I've heard mm. in terms of first-person shooters uh, or generally a retro or old-school type games, um, I have a nephew who's 11 and him and his friend were, were they were saying, that, oh, we're playing retro games, but they didn't really know what retro was. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't see these games as, oh, we're playing old games. That was just a different, oh, we're playing retro games. They loved retro games. They loved pixel art games, but none of that had anything to do with them thinking that these are old games. It's just, here's here's a new medium that, oh, they're more challenging and they, they give us what we need that the Fortnite and these other games don't give us, et cetera. But it's really, really fun. The same with fashion and so on. I, kind of how everything goes back to what it looked like maybe, you know, in the 90s or 80s. Um, and that's not what any of us expected when we were young. We were thinking no, uh, we were going to yeah. fly around flying cars and now everyone is kind of going back to the past. And like the same in our household, we're we're starting to look back at our grandpa grandparents' traditions and thinking, oh, how can we actually bring some of these back? Because traditions are cool now. It's awesome doing sure. some old weird tradition that your grandparents did. We want to bring that back to our kids. Right before this, I was uh, talking with my friend. Uh, he's, his artistic name is Amorpher. He is a amazing musician. Uh, he makes like ambient music, actually specifically for uh, Quake mods. And what what we were getting into is because in his day job, he is a biophysicist. And he was talking about like kind of the, as you mentioned, like the, the dystopian futuristic ideas that we have, like, like Blade Runner and like System Shock or whatever. We see this trope a million times in a lot of video games. But more than likely, it won't be that uh, we come together as a society and decide ahead of time that we need to scientifically advance ourselves to prepare for the future. We'll get into a situation where we must survive, and then we'll have to engineer our way out of a problem, which is obviously yeah. like what we're kind of dealing with. But I find that really fascinating, and as a, a continual trope in games is that you you were in a unique position, American, where you were kind of at the cutting edge early in your gaming career, where you're working with like the best technology that was years in advance. And now we're, we're kind of seeing people sort of engineer their way out of problems more and more often. So instead of going to college and getting a degree, you know, in, you know, game design or having someone available, who's the greatest, you know, coder who's ever lived and makes incredible engines that will last for 20, 30 years or more we'll yet to see. We see a lot of uh, guys like David Szymanski who's you know kind of always telling people when they ask like what should I do if I want to be a game developer and he's like uh learn what you need to learn to get the job done when you need to learn it and then you know just get the game completed. That's a really interesting concept that I've been toying around a lot lately cuz I didn't know how to do a podcast or like use audio <laughs> recording software or editing software or anything before I decided to do this. But you you're also turning what's, what's traditionally college education or whatever university education and then you're filtering out all of the noise. Yeah. 
and focusing only on the exact knowledge that you need to know in order to do what you like to do the most. And I think that's what a lot of people generally complain about in, in any education system is all of the noise that they're thinking, how will I ever need this in the future? I, I want to do this specific thing. And then they take those courses, but everything else is the noise. And you can kind of fill that out if you do this approach. Yeah. Well, I mean, all this stuff, it, it's it's always, for me, it always comes back to this idea that everything begins with a first step. Um, so no matter how complicated or complex or daunting a project or a task or something looks, um, you always have to take the first step. And I, I mean, that's been the case for me and watching even from the early days of, you know, the birth of the industry. Um, we had people back then who were also just like me pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and learning and, and doing as they went. Um, and that's never changed, even with all the tools that have come along, even with all the things that might you might think make the job easier. Um, there's still that most basic concept of you have to begin <laughs> you have to start mm -hmm. in order to finish and a lot of people um it's amazing to me i mean I, i've that same kind of advice you know just start um because a lot of people don't start they they want to have the thing handed to them before they begin and um if you wait for the thing to just miraculously happen it surprise surprise it never will so do you still uh, you still play video games or do you just make them? On and off, yeah. Um, these days, not so much just because, like I said, we had a kid. And that mm -hmm. really takes a lot of time away from you. Um, I, Fred, it sounds like you understand that. Um, you know, we, we were up last night uh, every hour, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m. with random screaming that I don't know what the hell it was about. <laughs> and, and then at like 5 a.m., I'm like, all right. I'm just getting out of bed, take the kid with me, make breakfast. Um, and and then I'm back in bed by like seven or eight o'clock at night. So since he's yeah. been born, um, you know, he's almost, he's just now 11 months. So for the last 11 months, that's basically been life. So I, I'm just, I feel fortunate when I can just have like a normal day of work and get some writing done. And I don't have time for games um, at the end of that sort of day. The last thing I sat and actually played was the uh, Kojima uh, cargo carrying game. Um, oh, the Postman uh, Pat Simulator? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't really get into that. I didn't understand it at all. Um, but prior to that, I had played um, Days Gone, which I thought was fantastic. I had a real blast. Um, driving around on motorcycles and killing zombies. So I do still play games and I, I really get a lot of pleasure out of them. Um, I just these days don't have much time for it. As your son uh, ages, you know, three, four years from now, what, if any, games are you looking forward to revisiting with him that you could pass along? I, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I do know that all the kids that I know these days, they're crazy about Minecraft, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I imagine that he will also be crazy about Minecraft. And I and I can understand why, because I got crazy about Minecraft myself for quite a while. Um, there, there's just something magical going on in there, of, you know, the, the sense of exploration and building and all this kind of stuff. Digital so Legos. Uh, I'm sure. He, yeah, but there's a lot more to it than that, right? I mean, there's this sense of danger and survival and... Um, Anyway, so I, I think I think I won't be surprised if he goes quite nuts around that. He seems to have that kind of brain. He likes building. He likes taking things apart. And he, he likes hitting things. So he's already got the the uh, the skill in place for pickaxing his way through the world. <laughs> um, in terms of other games, you know, I, to be honest with you, I hadn't even thought about it. Um, we no, I, I hadn't thought about what kind of games he's going to play at all. I don't know. Hadn't, hadn't it, it, my it, it might it might turn out different than you expect. Like I I I had the same discussion with my friends when when my daughter was uh, she's seven now, but then when she was turning you know three four like around the age when you can start playing something, and I gave her you know oh here's an old Nintendo with Super Mario Bros. three and here's Doom on the PC, and the only thing she plays and is even interested in playing on any platform is this horse MMO on her iPad. That's the only thing she yeah. cares about. Yeah. Yeah, he does yeah. not like video games at all, except for playing horses on her iPad. And I, I've been trying for her entire life to get her to, oh, look, it's like monsters and Quake and Doom mm -hmm. and so on. But yeah, she doesn't care. But she's a girl. I, it might also be 
something to do with the fact that her other friends are doing all the horse stuff. And sure, I think sure. it's a bit easier with, with a boy, but yeah. To kind of leave us off here, American, you, you also made a really cool looking board game or is it a card game out of the woods? I watched a video of someone uh, demoing it the other day and it, it is interesting hmm. to see you uh, branch out of just the, you know, video game strictly thing, but to, to tell stories in other ways and to create uh, experiences in other ways. So how was, uh, how was that? Like, how did that come about for you? So out of the woods, um, came about because I, I ran into a personal tragedy. Like I had what you'd call an encounter with chaos Mm -hmm. and, um, it was, it was really difficult. And, and it was at a time a few years back where I thought I was maybe past that sort of stuff. You think like, ah, I've lived long enough and, um, I'm secure enough. And I, I think I have a grasp on the world around me enough and I'm in control enough. That's the great illusion, right? Um, that I, I don't foresee there being an encounter, a significant encounter with chaos. Um, and this thing happened and it proved me completely wrong and it, it absolutely turned my world upside down and, and it, you know, broke me apart to the point of having to kind of reform. And in the process of doing that, uh, reforming, I needed a creative outlet. And, and one of the things that came about in this, this chaotic event was this realization that a lot of the reason why I ended up where I was, was my own fault. And a lot of the fault lay in the violation of some of the basic rules of the universe. Um, things that are contained in the Bible, um, but also things that if you're not religious are contained in fairy tales. And so I started really thinking about the fact that, uh, I wanted to create a tool set, a warning, whatever you want to call it, uh, that could help other people to be aware of the things that you might want to know in case you want to avoid chaos. It's funny because as I was working on that, it was right when the the Jordan Peterson 12 rules mm-hmm. uh, was was coming out. So yeah. um, there's actually a bit of overlap in there. I mean, he's also got another book um, talking about the, the content of myths and, and mythology and how these things transcend time and culture um, because they contain these really valuable lessons on surviving and avoiding chaos. So uh, Out of the Woods is essentially that. It is taking some of the classic fairy tales and dissecting them to, well, the tagline says to put the teeth back in them so mm-hmm. that if you were to read these tales to your kids, um, it'll tell the original stories in a way that the kids might might think twice before lying or stealing or cheating or doing whatever. Um, because they get to see that at the end of the unwashed, uncleaned version, um, there are some real consequences to those bad behaviors. Um, so that's that was the inspiration and the the sort of content of um, of Out of the Woods, and we had a lot of fun doing it. You know, like you said, it's a it's a tabletop game. It's also a an illustrated book that contains all the stories, and there's like a coloring book and a bunch of other stuff that goes with it. Um, so we managed, I think, to put. Um, something like 15 or 20 different of uh, these old fairy tales in there. And all of them have um, unique artwork that go along with them. It's all original art of re-illustrating tales like um, Red Riding Hood or Jack and the Beanstalk. But we did all the art in a very gory fashion. So, you know, you, you see um, Red Riding Hood, you know, the wolf gobbling up the, the grandma. And then later in the story, you get to see the wolf being boiled alive in a pot, you know, so it's, it's pretty graphic. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun to work on, and it it did help do the trick of giving me a creative outlet when I really needed one. Do you think that because of a lot of the chaos that you've went through in life, that is why you gravitate towards things that you know that you can manifest or in control, like engines and like video game levels? Like when you create the universe and you get to decide how it works and what can and can't happen, does that like feel a bit therapeutic? Um, I don't know if it's about, well, so I, I mean, if, if the premise is that I go sailing because it makes me feel in control, um, no, because yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're out on a boat and you know, you suck a jellyfish up into the water intake and your engine quits or overheats, like you don't feel in control. You, you know, it, that my boat, the name of the boat is actually chaos. Um, and I've got a big chaos symbol on the, on the sail. So when the sails come out, you see this big, you know, chaos symbol. So 
And a lot of other sailors would be like, why the hell would you name boat chaos? <laughs> you know, that sounds like a terrible idea. And I think like, well, the, the old sailors kind of tale is, you know, you should never name your boat like hurricane because it'll invite a hurricane to destroy your boat. So I figure this is a sort of reverse psychology on the universe. It's like, okay, I'm going to name my boat disaster <laughs> <laughs> in the hopes that never, <laughs> no disaster comes. Um, there is something to be said, though, for, I, you know, I do like tasks um, related to the boat because they're, they're very much about preparedness. Okay. Um, I don't think that we can, um, I don't think we can avoid chaos, but I think we can make the encounters that we do have better or less damaging or less horrible if we've prepared ourselves and we have prepared tools for ourselves accordingly, right? So um, that's something that I, I like. I mean, I like working with tools and maybe one of the reasons I like building games, there, there's a very, um, you know, you get into that flow, right? You get into that sense of like just building stuff. Um, and you kind of lose track of time. That's what writing, that's what building levels, that's what working on engines does for me. I feel like there's no question I could ask you that you wouldn't give some beautifully thought out philosophical answer to, man. It's been really amazing to <laughs> get the chance to kind of like spend some time learning from you and uh, growing to understand you as a fan. Absolutely. So, yeah, cool. It's been really fun Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. yeah. Fred, uh, any closing Appreciate thoughts? Appreciate you having me on. I, I think we, we covered uh, most of the stuff I'd love to hear. Uh, I can't wait for, for our fans to hear this uh, mm -hmm. this podcast. It's gonna be it's gonna be a treat, absolutely. American, you have and thanks thing? for doing this. Uh, yeah. Well, if the fans are um, curious about any of the things we're working on, probably the easiest thing to do is just go to um, AmericanMcGee.com, mm -hmm. and then that redirects to all of the stuff out there, social media channels and, and whatnot. So thank you so much for being part of this, man. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, you guys so for inviting me.